Good morning, everyone. My name is Micah. Uh, I'm a Wheaton College grad who's been coming to All Souls for about three and a half years now. Um, and uh, I am blessed to be able to be here and do our catechesis this morning. Uh, so you should have on your handout there. Uh, does anybody not have a handout? Anybody? One there. Grab our handout. Let's, uh, let's say our litany together. For Lancelot Andrews, John Wesley, and Charles Simeon, and for all who preach the word of God, thanks be to God. I'd like to begin by reading Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. The word of the Lord. Uh, I stopped reading where I did, um, mostly for the sake of time. It's one of those passages, like a lot in Isaiah, where I just I think there's really no good place to stop. From John Wesley's own notes on the passage, uh, in verse 6, uh, Wesley describes the coal as both a token or gift and an instrument of purification. Uh, this is God's free gift to us and a means of making us right before him because the seraphim immediately says, your sins are taken away, your guilt is taken away. We're made pure. We're made clean. Uh, there really is no greater gift and there's no other way to get it. On the question, who will go for us, Wesley notices the Trinitarian language. Uh, he writes, the change of the number, I and us, is very remarkable, and both being meant of one and the same Lord do sufficiently intimate a plurality of persons in the Godhead. Using this theme of fire, uh, Wesley's own life was uh, touched by fire twice. First time when he, he almost died in a rectory fire, um, but he was saved at the last minute. And it's now sort of a legendary foretelling of his great destiny to become you know, one of our all-time most prolific preachers, you know, at least before the television age. Um, and the second was when his heart was strangely warmed at Aldersgate. And it's that second metaphorical flame that wraps the Methodist cross, as you can see on your handout there. Uh, we're going to look at both those events in more detail in a bit, in particular, Aldersgate. <clears throat> And I'm going to abandon this coffee because I can't balance all this at the same time. 
still be warm later. <clears throat> so our saint for all souls this week is 18th century preacher and founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley. Um, we're not talking about St. Patrick today, sorry. Um, but I wore green anyway. Matt tried to get me to do this in an Irish accent. Not going to do it. Um, Wesley has a, he has a really daunting output. Uh, he's, he preached 40,000 sermons at least in his life, often preaching three a day. And many of those are, are probably repeats. Um, but with that much in, uh, in the canon, you can see why it's often hard for theologians to agree on Wesley's exact views on certain things because his views developed over a lifetime. Is it most fair to accept his later views as the most definitive, uh, or do we pick and choose? Uh, and I think you kind of have to allow yourself to see this progression of doctrinal view rather than just pick one morsel and latch onto it. <clears throat> it's also important to keep in mind that he's a pastor and a shepherd first and foremost. Randy Maddox says this, the primary literary forms of real theological activity for Wesley were not systematic theologies or apologetics. They were carefully crafted liturgies, catechisms, hymns, sermons, and the like. And finally, the quintessential practitioner of theology was not the detached academic theologian. It was the pastor theologian who was actively shepherding Christian disciples in the world. So if you're really interested in Wesley's doctrine, um, Randy Maddox's book, Responsible Grace, is a really good one to pick up. I'd uh, highly recommend that. Good overview of um, his beliefs and his views on things. <clears throat> so what I want to do this morning is uh, explore a bit of Wesley's biography up to Aldersgate, discuss a few things, uh, hopefully hear from you all, uh, maybe hear about some of your personal experiences, and then get into some of uh, Wesley's theology. And by design, I have included a lot of things on your handout that we probably uh, won't even come close to talking about today. Uh, if you're part of a house group or a church friend group, or if a bunch of you all just go ahead and get brunch after this, I'd really encourage you to examine it together. One of the best parts of the homily or the catechesis is when it begets more examination amongst ourselves later in the week. And through the course of preparing for this, uh, I found Wesley's sermons to be very soothing, uh, when you just read them devotionally. Uh, so if you find a quote that you really like, I, I'd encourage you, go read the whole sermon. Uh, they're, they're really quite wonderful. So first, some biography. Uh, Wesley was born in 1703. He was the 15th child and second son of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. And um, I, think, I think nine of them lived past, uh, past infancy. She ultimately had 19. And she herself was the 25th child um, of the family. And largely at Susanna's behest, uh, education for all of the children was a, uh, was a top priority. Even the girls were taught to read and to write in both Latin and in Greek at a very young age. Susanna would administer quizzes to each child at lunch and at evening prayers. Uh, so you can see it looks like Wesley's really methodical roots ran very deep. <clears throat> when Wesley was 11, he went to study at Charterhouse School in London. And one night, the, the rectory caught fire. Uh, the Wesleys managed to get all of their children outside to safety, except for John, who was stranded on the top floor. He was very nearly killed in the fire, but he was rescued at the last minute, just as the stairway and the roof were collapsing. And he would say of himself in this event later on that he was a brand plucked from fire, quoting the, the prophet Zechariah. Wow. 
So to me, that's kind of a, it's kind of a neat metaphor for this idea that um, divine grace precedes human decision. Uh, the belief that God will start showing love to an individual at a certain point in their lifetime. Grace enables, but does not ensure, personal acceptance of the gift of salvation. Plucked from fire, um, but Wesley's earnest choice to pick up his cross and follow Christ was yet to come. Another way that we're going to reflect on this uh, this morning is on what God does and what we do with our will. Um, this is what um, Maddox calls responsible grace. Without God's grace, we cannot be saved. While without grace-empowered but uncoerced participation, God's grace will not save. God enables rather than overrides human responsibility. Wesley was educated at Christ Church, Oxford, and in 1729, uh, when he was 26, he and his brother Charles, along with a few other friends, including George Whitfield, uh, they started what came to be known as the Holy Club. And they didn't choose that name for themselves. Um, it was given to them by um, some other people. Um, some people just kind of dismissed them as like being fanatics and sort of weird. Um, but here are just a few of these methods that they use to try and systematically serve God every hour of each day. Um, they took communion once a week. <clears throat> every Wednesday and Friday, they would fast till 3 p.m. Uh, every night, they would study uh, Greek New Testament and the classics together. And they, they would systematically bring their whole lives under strict review, taking their holy temperature each hour and giving themselves a rating on a scale from one to nine. And it's possible Wesley was the only one doing that, um, <laughs> by like, giving himself the rating or something. I'm, I'm not really sure. They all asked themselves this list of questions every day during their devotions. And for Wesley, um, I think it kind of de developed into this really elaborate grid that he had, and that's probably where this weird numbering system came from. Um, so it's really easy to just kind of you know, make fun of them, and you know, they, they are really nerdy. Um, but some of the, here, here's just a few of the questions they asked. I gave you all of them on the handout. Here's just a selection. Can I be trusted? Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I'm better than I am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I enjoying prayer? Do I pray about the money I spend? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? Um, pretty neat questions, actually. I think it'd be, it'd be a lot cooler if it wasn't quite so convicting. Um, <clears throat> so looking back, it was definitely a really important period in Wesley's life, and this was where Wesley really saw the first rise of Methodism for him. But we know how the fervor of youth can sometimes get doused by real-world experience, and that's exactly what happened to Wesley next, in his next chapter. In 1735, uh, John and Charles sailed to America to minister to the Native Americans in Savannah, Georgia. And also on board was a group of Moravian missionaries, a Protestant movement responsible for one of the earliest major missionary movements. And during the trip, while the boat was rocked by storms and most passengers were afraid for their lives, Wesley noticed the Moravians were extremely calm singing hymns and praises to God. And uh, he was in awe. Uh, what did they have that he didn't have? And he really envied their inner strength. So Wesley's time in Georgia did not quite go as planned. 
He didn't end up ministering very much to Native Americans because the, the European colonists there needed so much help. He fell in love with a young woman uh, named Sophia Hopke. He was 33 and she was 18. And though they were in love, he decided not to marry her in the interest of prioritizing his ministry to the Native Americans. Um, and it seems backing off to being just friends didn't really work so well for Wesley. Um, they still saw each other socially, and after one such meeting, he, he wrote in his journal, this was indeed an hour of trial. Her words, her air, her eyes, her every motion and gesture were full of such softness and sweetness. I know not what might have been the consequence had I then but touched her hand, and how I avoided it I know not. Surely God is over all. <laughs> so she marries someone else. And Wesley overreacts a little bit. Um, he got upset. He suspects her Christian zeal uh, has flickered. And then he actually denies her communion because of that. Um, and you know, maybe there was you know, other circumstances and some justification surrounding this, but it didn't look good. And um, everyone in the parish really felt the same way. Uh, and Wesley was basically pushed out and back to England. So after this Georgia failure, uh, Wesley was, he was quite depressed. And that really must have been a long and ponderous journey back to England, wondering how it all went so wrong. And there were silver linings, to be sure. Uh, he just published the collection of Psalms and Hymns, uh, which was the first Anglican hymnal published in North America. Um, but it seems uh, the whole American endeavor sort of uh, soured him for a time. <coughs> Uh, we know that this is when he, he basically rejected Christian mysticism. And I think that's interesting because the main Wesley mystical experience that we associate with him was still yet to come. And he published a collection of writings on mystics later on in 1750. So the influence probably still remained uh, somewhat. And Richard Rohr even writes, uh, Methodism was the closest in Protestantism to the rediscovery of mysticism. The heart strangely warmed, methods, practices, and inspiration from the early church. But before the heartwarming experiences, uh, while Wesley is sitting in the hull of this ship being carried back to England, having fallen in love and then out of love, having been soundly rejected from a parish, rethinking a lot of things, rejecting a lot of teachings he'd previously held dear, I'm really intrigued to think that this, uh, this dark night of the soul when he's out in the desert of the ocean um, was where the groundwork was being laid, not his coming mountaintop. Mm. Powerlessness, the broken and hopefully contrite spirit. It's these types of moments where we really realize our need for God. Here are some writings on that from 20th century Christian mystic Simone Weil. Not to exercise all the power at one's disposal is to endure the void. This is contrary to all the laws of nature. Grace alone can do it. Grace fills empty spaces, but it can only enter where there is a void to receive it. And it is grace itself which makes this void. The world must be regarded as containing something of a void in order that it may have need of God. That presupposes evil. To love truth means to endure the void and, as a result, to accept death. Truth is on the side of death. Fortunately, God was not done with Wesley. 
uh, on May 24th, 1738, he went to a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate Street, London. And while he was there, he heard uh, Martin Luther's preface to the Book of Romans. And this is the exact excerpt um, concerning chapters 7 and 8 that would change his life. And yet they can hear and say much about faith. They fall into error and say, faith is not enough. One must do works in order to be righteous for themselves, by their own powers, an idea in their hearts which says, I believe. This depths of the heart, and so nothing comes of it and no betterment follows it. Faith, however, is a divine work in us. It changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. John 1. It kills the old Adam and makes altogether different men in heart and spirit and mind and powers, and it brings with it the Holy Ghost. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and is always doing them. And after hearing this, Wesley wrote, he felt his heart strangely warmed. And there it is. There's the fire burning brighter. It's finally that moment of the hot coal touching the tip of his tongue. And after such a long time of systems and fasting and grids and clubs, failures at home and abroad, uh, a deep sense of purpose for him. And the fire that burned around him in the rectory as a boy finally takes root deep in his soul. The climb starts in a hole and then the maturation begins and Wesley begins to move toward this mature integration of the primacy of grace into his enduring concern for Christian holiness. Um, So if I can, maybe I'll just pause there and um, just like to ask you all, maybe if if anybody has this, if you'd like to share some of your own Aldersgate-like experiences, um, does this resonate with you? What are times where you felt your heart strangely warmed or you felt God's reassuring presence in your life? I'm not sure if anyone has a time where they'd feel like sharing that. Yes? Well, something that that I was really struck by was um, I I felt a connection with the, um, when you said that about the, um, so the fervor of of youth being uh, like extinguished by real life experience. I'm more, I'm more on the boat on my way to England right now. And so I, um, I appreciated kind of seeing myself in, in that story and seeing, uh, seeing the hope of, um, of finding, finding purpose again, of finding reconciliation with mysticism. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, so I saw myself there. Yes, one sympathizes. <laughs> Anyone else? Anything they'd like to share? Yes. Like I, I can relate. I mean, it's interesting that they're separate, right? The failures and then the consolation comes later. Sort of. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But I, I just think of. I remember weeping with Denise in a in a van after I completely blew a youth group talk to a, at, on a ski trip. Mm. I just knew I, I just blew it. And, and then I saw like divisions in that ministry that I was supposedly leading. Just absolute catastrophic, deeply embarrassing failures. 
as something you just want to edit out of your life history, and yet it's the stuff that great things are made of. So this is this is a treasure you cooked up for us here. Yeah, no, I um, it, it's true. There, you can't really keep them separate. They come together. I mean, the the heartwarming wouldn't have come without that voyage, um, and you you. Yeah, you, just, you have to go through one in order to ascend. You have to be in the valley to come to the mountaintop. Um, and that's kind of what Simone Weil is saying. Is, you know, there, there has to be this need for God, right? It has to be there. There has to be a void. Um, so going, going a little bit out of order, any, would, maybe this is too personal a question to ask about those failures. And if anyone wants to talk about that, feel free. Or... or <laughs> um, or uh, because this is Lent, um, and maybe you want to talk about something that you learned in you know, the brokenness and the sacrificial season of Lent, either this year or, this, or years past. Yeah, go ahead, Monica. Yeah, it's magical, isn't it? It really is. Even while it's happening, there's like a just the the undying dependence that you have to have. Yes, yeah, it just kind of creates this shimmer around you. Like I can, I can eat and I can sleep and maybe I can get myself out of bed in the morning. Um, but other than that, you, God's got to do everything else. Somebody else had their hand up. Yes. Actually, being held in the arms of God, 
And it was such a powerful experience, just a sense of peace and well-being, even in the midst of uh, a great loss. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Mark? Yeah, I feel that it's kind of resonating with what you're saying. Like, I think often, yeah, this uh, period of trial kind of, um, they can prompt a recognition of the ways that God has already been working in your life, that there is kind of a, a scaffolding that's been created that you can kind of lean on. Um, That's very interesting. Yes. Somebody back here. Yeah, Bethany. <laughs> Okay. It's like Isaiah. Here I am. Here I am. That's what you have to say. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting how the, the Alders Gate, those types of you know, mountaintop experiences, how quickly they fade. Um, and what we're talking about here is you know, kind of the Lent building up to Easter, isn't it? That's right where we are. And then what, hap- what happens right after that? Um, 
So was Wesley, was Wesley really saved before this? Um, he was certainly, he was trying really hard to feel saved. Um, like we try to feel healthy, we're obsessively taking our own temperatures every single hour to you know, reassure ourselves. Um, I remember when I was in seventh grade, uh, this is a really stupid story. Um, my youth pastor talked to us about how to know if you're saved. And all I remember is this one surfer dude said, I was sitting on the edge of the dock one night by the ocean, and there was a full moon reflected in the water. And then a dolphin jumped out of the middle of the reflection of the full moon. And I said to myself, man, I know I'm saved. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's like admittedly completely insane. Um, but if that really happened to you, I wouldn't try and discredit that like for anything in the world. Um, you better believe if that happened to me, I would consider that a religious experience. I really would. Um, but uh, in spite of all that, I really resonate with what you all said. I, um, I don't think I've, I've ever really had like the happy, you know, Aldersgate-esque experience like Wesley. Um, mine are more the dramatic, the, the painful, blinding Damascus Road experiences, um, followed by lots of flailing in the desert. But there is something very, very special about that feeling and something where if I think I've ever lost that dependence, then I think I'm in trouble. Um, so I'm, yes, I'm definitely spending a lot more time in the ship's hull than in the church pew. Um, and I've always found the growth and the watershed moment through suffering. And I know, um, yeah, that's, that's very personal for all of us, but from the sad desert to the heartwarming response, um, again, that's what we see with Isaiah. Um, it's God's grace that leads Isaiah from woe is me to here I am. Um, just like they was writing, the grace comes in through the void. And Isaiah travels from repentance to faith, from surrender to action. John Wesley writes in Sermon 14, the repentance of believers, repentance says, without him I can do nothing. Faith says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Through him I can serve him in holiness and righteousness all my days. It's not hard to see the similar thing happening in Wesley's own life. He went from the doing, 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 the constant temperature taking, um, till it was just a still small voice. It was just a quiet evening service that drew him close. Now after this, um, his expectations were quite high. And maybe under some Moravian influence, he, I think he really thought he was never going to sin again. Um, this strong emotional experience clearly had to mean that he was done with sin and temptation and failure once and for all. Um, isn't that what Christianity is? Christ-likeness and being made holy, um, total purification, living the rest of our lives free from sin. I think there's good reason why, that's, why that isn't the case. Um, going back, two things we can look at, going back to Luther's preface to Romans, preceding what we read before, because the flesh is not yet slain, we still are sinners. But because we believe and have a beginning of the spirit, God is so favorable and gracious to us that he will not count the sin against us or judge us for it. Okay, that's very reassuring, but it's not an invitation to forsake sanctification. About chapter 6 of Romans, Luther writes, Faith doesn't so free us from sin that idle, lazy, and self-assured, as though there were no more sin in us, 
Sin is there, but because of faith that struggles against it, God does not reckon sin as deserving damnation. And again, that is, that's just a beautiful promise. The other thing on that is Wesley's own Sermon 13 on sin in believers. This is written in response to uh, the Moravians themselves, and specifically this kind of germinating idea that Christians don't sin at all after justification. Uh, it's worth noting that no one really believes that for obvious reasons, um, but it's also really helpful to our faith, I think, to understand why we still, uh, why we still face temptation. Wesley writes, the doctrine that there is no sin in believers tears away the defense of weak believers, deprives them of their need to trust, and therefore leaves them exposed to all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're so sinful when we're infants in Christ that there are impurities we don't even yet know we have. And it takes a lot of time and pulling back layers upon layers to be sanctified. Uh, this is natural. And as Wesley points out here, uh, it teaches us humility. For a recent convert to set an expectation of immediate perfection uh, would beget frustration. So you can think of Wesley post-Aldersgate. Um, he ultimately became even more frustrated and confused because he was still tempted after this wonderful emotional and spiritual experience. And we have all of those, we all have those letdowns. Um, we, we come back from a retreat, we come down from the mountaintop, um, after we see the dolphin and the full moon, the fires really do need to be stoked and tended. So continuing from that same sermon, someone may ask, can Christ be in the same heart where sin is? I answer that without a doubt he can. Otherwise the heart would not need to be cleansed from sin. Where sickness is, there is the physician. That's an amazing truth about Christ's power, and that's cause for rejoicing. <clears throat> he goes on. Again, the disputant may posit another objection. But believers walk according to the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God dwells in them, consequently, believers are delivered from the guilt and power of sin in a word from the existence of sin. I answer this assertion by pointing out that the argument unites the presence of the Holy Spirit and the absence of sin as if they are the same things but they are not the same thing. The guilt of sin is one thing, the power of sin is another, and the existence of sin is still another. I acknowledge that believers are delivered from the guilt and power of sin, but I deny they are delivered from the existence of sin. Christians may have the Spirit of God dwelling in them and walk according to the Spirit while at the same time they still feel the flesh opposing the Spirit. So reasons that we remain imperfect, humility. God wants us to lose the battle of self-control and say, I can't do this on my own. Repentance and faith. Repentance that says, I'm completely unable to save myself from my sin. Faith that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This continual battle against sin is really the regular reminder that we need faith in Jesus to be perfect in God's sight. From Sermon 15, If therefore we think that we are already made whole, there is no need to seek any additional healing. Given this presumption, it is absurd to expect a further deliverance from sin, whether gradual or instantaneous. 
From what we have considered, we may learn that a deep conviction of our defects or guilt after we are justified is absolutely necessary for us fully to appreciate the true value of Christ's atoning blood. Believers need to understand their condition if they are to see that they need Christ as much after they have been justified as they did before they were justified. The repentance of believers means that we must sink into nothing so that the Lord may become all in all for us. Then his almighty grace will abolish every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's justification followed not by laziness. Um, we must retain the technical primacy of divine grace and trusting one who enjoys God's gracious justifying presence will naturally respond in good works and holiness. That's the responsible grace that Maddox is talking about. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's still helpful for adults, too. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's neat that you say that you have this you know, highly structured thing around you to help you grow and to help you learn how to think and to eventually move beyond it. Yeah. Yes? It's just so Lutheran. It's simul justus et peccator. It is at the same time just and sinner. Sometimes we caricature Wesley... And going back to our chart from the beginning of this year, oh, he's, on, he's finally realized that Protestantism went too far and he's giving the Catholic correction and he's saying we're on this steep incline. He's not saying that. Mm -hmm. He's not. Deep coming from Anglicanism is this understanding of the paradox of the justified sinner. You've given us the smoking gun texts here. You can't say that he, Council of Trent rules this stuff out. Really interesting. This is hugely important for this great experiment that we've been up to the last several years of trying to bring grace in touch with what our Anglican tradition. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And it's, again, it's difficult for people to latch on to that because you know, his views do, do develop over time. But you can't really ignore the early or the mid-period Wesley, but kind of look and see how it crystallizes is really interesting. Quick additional comment. What some of us have rediscovered the nation exercises. Great, so glad we've done it. Let's keep doing it. Because there was this method in Catholicism, but we had one here too. That he's, he's the Ignatius of Loyola of the Anglican tradition, giving you responsive grace. So interesting. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Yes, Dan, go ahead. Uh, I'm always interested in Wesley. Um, many of my ancestors on my father's side were Moravians mm. in Pennsylvania. In fact, there's uh, oral tradition fascinates me a lot. And one thing that I, I wonder as I think about these 22 questions from the Holy Club mm -hmm. is how the late 
later, uh, post uh, Aldersgate, Wesley would have regarded the 22 questions. Was this something he still did, uh, still encourage people to do later in life? Was it something he rejected as being uh, something a little bit closer to works righteousness? Uh, how, how was it maybe tempered by a new understanding of grace? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And um, you still have the, the general rules, right, in Methodism, um, which I didn't have written down here, but just, just here in the, in the Maddox book. Um, the, general, the three general rules, avoid all known sin, easy, um, <laughs> do as much good as one can, piece of cake, and attend all the ordinances of God. Um, so like those are your big like general things and you have, uh, there were like quarterly meetings with, uh, with the, the priest to kind of see how you're doing with those. So it's still there. It's still, <laughs> one would think it would turn into that. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of the holy tempers and activities list that, uh, um, that he still wants you know, people in his parish to, to go by. So yeah, I think the, um, the roots were there, and maybe, maybe he looked on that still. I think he still saw that as an important time in his life. So when he's coming back and he's saying, you're really stressing your private exercises, scripture, devotional readings, prayer, those are really important. Um, he's got a really... You great set of other um, communal supportive things to do, uh, like covenant renewal, um, just as a group, re you renewing your commitment to Christ. Usually there's a service that they would do every year. Um, this thing called love feasts, um, enjoying non-sacramental food together, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, that's also interesting because uh, one of Wesley's kind of departures from Anglicanism is that he basically took away feast days um, his church calendar really emphasizes um, seasons, you know, Advent, Easter, and Pentecost, the, you know, the ones that really have directly to do with Christ. I think they all have to do with Christ, but those are the ones he, he emphasizes. And he did keep All Saints Day, so he, he wasn't completely foregoing it. Um, but it's fun that we're talking about him in this series on saints when he was kind of minimizing um, saints so much. Um, <clears throat> and then there are, there are a lot of other things on this holy tempers list. Um, accountability with you know, getting a spiritual director, um, works of mercy, the importance of self-denial. He still had a really strong emphasis on fasting or you know, abstaining from frivolous pleasures like um, horse racing and fine clothes are like two things that you should abstain from. So work on, work on that as a group. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. Um, Mark, did you have your hand up? Oh, yeah. Um, just I was thinking about how Yeah, yeah, and that goes back to what Monica was saying about parenting. Like, it's still just this principle of structuring and having this strong Methodism is. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to really 
you know, dispute that, you know, if it's something that's really effective. Um, Elaine? Um, <clears throat> Yeah. yeah, it really seems like he's just trying to move away from something rather than to actually move towards something. And something is moving towards us, too. Yeah, we, we need that hand. That's the grace that has to come and pull us closer. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking that uh, what he was doing for the church was similar to what St. Benedict had done for the church about 1,200, 1,300 years earlier. There's all this structure... Uh, in Benedict's case, he calls a few uh, together and makes the structure inside of a, a set of walls. But in Wesley's case, he's trying to offer it to the whole congregation, which is, uh, you know, awesome. You know? Yes. Yeah, he just jumps on horseback and goes and, and preaches three times a day. I think like 150,000 miles he traveled. Um, preaching just on horseback. It's really quite remarkable. Go ahead, Joy. There's part of my life where I was, a, I was actually originally confirmed in a Methodist church, so I have some familiarity with John. Um, what I find interesting, you were talking about how essentially what he did was do it with the holy days or some seasons, you know, kind of proved mm -hmm. his, how we would, you know, yeah, with nuance, I'm trying to be rude here. <laughs> um, but what has been fascinating to me is that there has, at least being growing up in a Methodist church when I did, there were definite saints that people would talk about. Like there is an mm. entire Susanna Wesley Sunday. Oh, so where it's cool. talking about the contributions of what his mother did in laying the foundation for this to come about. So it's fascinating to me that he kind of branched that off as something like, no, that's not what I'm doing. But actually totally what I'm doing over here. And it, it turns into more like the saints were less known by their names and all here the things and it's more of this person did all of this. Oh, by the way, her name was so and so. And I could give you other characters where that was the example, but uh, like in the Methodist church where I grew up for at least half of my growing up, there were 12 windows on either side, and they were all what I would define as United Methodist Saints. Mm -hmm. Like if I walked into the Catholic church, I would see the big players, right? Yes. If I'm walking into that United Methodist sanctuary, you would see the big players. So mm -hmm. it's just a fascinating thing. Yeah, and he he might be he might be fine with it because he looked at them they're exemplars still. But, yes. But it just it's very interesting to me because looking at that from the outside now, that definitely has a strong look and vibe to what I would describe as how I understand saints. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's just a very interesting picture is I wonder what this thought would be stepping into that space and, and seeing how that kind of has fleshed out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the, the exact same thing over at Gary. Right. We were just. You walk in there and it's, it's telling a story. And I love that. I have no problem with that. Uh, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what he would have thought about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Like he, he took away the days. He won yeah. their exam. I don't know. <laughs> I, 
I also don't know what he would have thought about, um, there's another Methodist church over on Blanchard that's called Aldersgate. Yeah. Uh, like if maybe he would have thought that was a little weird or I don't know, we maybe it would have been cool. Too. Oh, we did. Okay. Yeah. Then you all know that. Cool. Go ahead. Um, Tad, you've had your hand up. Hannah, did you have, have a thought? You probably know more than I do. Yes, yeah, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't it was more like the Anglican parishes like kind of pushing him away, right? That's yeah, go ahead. You might have some thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, that whole upheaval. And in general, just the, the 18th century was a very kind of eclectic and, and curious time in Anglicanism. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Did I miss any hands that were up that went down? Um, yeah, I think originally one of the things I was most interested in this talk was the idea of um, Christian perfection and whether that's even possible. Um, but I just kind of became less and less interested in that as we went along. Wesley does have a really great sermon called Christian Perfection, and you should read it. And in it, he says you should never expect, never expect to be free from temptation, um, and that Christian perfection is just another word for holiness. So maybe before we close, I can just read um, one hymn text from uh, Charles Wesley. This is, Oh, for a heart to praise my God. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely spilt for me, a heart resigned, submissive, meek, my great Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. Oh, for a lowly, contrite heart, believing, true, and clean, which neither life nor death can part from him that dwells within a heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. Thy nature, gracious Lord, impart, come quickly from above. Write thy new name upon my heart, thy new best name of love. Amen. Thank you.